thank you for being here again for the next Friday episode of our weekly podcast, The Class Action Weekly Wire. I'm Jerry Matman, a partner at Dwayne Morris, and joining me today are uh, Jen and Alessandra. Uh, thank you so much for both being on our podcast today. Great to be here, Jerry. Thanks for having me. Today, our topic is consumer fraud class action litigation. Could you both share some of the highlights in 2022 in terms of key rulings? Absolutely. So class action litigation in the consumer fraud space remains an area of key focus by the plaintiff's class action bar. Um, over the past year, in 2022 in particular, consumer fraud class actions um, popped up across a variety of industries. Um, those industries include household appliances, credit reporting, children's car seats, insurance. Um, for one, beauty and cosmetics experienced a real boom in the consumer fraud area during the past few months, um, and in particular, the end of 2022, as consumer demand increased. Um, and the demand for transparency about the ingredients in, cosmetics pro in cosmetic products increased and also information about the product's effects. Alexandra, do you wanna um, elaborate on that? Yes, um, so L'Oreal is currently defending a consumer fraud class that alleges the beauty brand misled its customers about the nature of the collagen ingredients used in its anti-aging products. And similarly, Sephora is facing a serial lead plaintiff who claims it's, quote, clean at Sephora stamp on cosmetic products is misleading because Sephora's clean beauty products actually contain a multitude of synthetic ingredients that would not meet consumers' layman definition of clean as something free from impurities. I've often heard it said, and I actually subscribe to the view that class action litigation is a lot like real estate where location is all important. Were there particular jurisdictions in 2022 where consumer fraud class action litigation was more predominant than others? Yes, Jerry. So in 2022, the jurisdictions for successful class certification rulings were really clustered in the second, seventh, and ninth circuits. Historically, those three circuits have become magnet jurisdictions for class actions due to their tendency to issue favorable rulings on class certification motions. In that light, were uh, what, in your opinion, uh, Jen, would have been the most significant rulings in 2022 in this particular space? Well, many of the class action rulings we analyzed in the Dwayne Morris class action review dealt with predominance and superiority requirements of Rule 23b3. Um, one of those examples is in Suffolk University COVID relief relief litigation, in which the plaintiffs, a group of university students, filed a class action against their university after the COVID-19 pandemic um, ceased all in-person um, learning in spring 2020. The plaintiffs in that case proposed a class that consisted of all students who had enrolled in in-person or on-campus programs or classes at Suffolk University um, and not any separate Suffolk online programs um, before March 11, 2020 and who paid tuition or fees. Um, so interestingly, the defendant in that case chose not to focus its opposition to class certification on Rule 23A or the requirements of commonality 
um, and instead opted primarily to argue that the putative student class could not establish superiority under Rule 23b3. Um, interestingly, the, the, the court in that case denied the motion for class certification. Um, the court denied it really on the basis of a plaintiff's failed to establish that the class action vehicle was superior to other individualized methods for adjudicating those claims. Um, the court held that a genuine issue existed regarding whether individual college students had the capacity to sue Suffolk University individually, especially given the disparity in resources available to Suffolk compared with those available to individual students. Um, as a result, the court believed that the issue could be resolved um, by ascertaining what education was actually offered and that the, that question did not implicate complex factual disputes requiring voluminous or expensive expert testimony. That's correct. So another example of the predominance analysis appears in Nui v. Johnson & Johnson, where a plaintiff purchased a certain product because its packaging represented that it was oil-free, but later the plaintiff discovered the product actually contained various oil ingredients and oil byproducts. So the plaintiff sued J&J, alleging multiple fraud claims, claims for violations of California's False Advertising Act, California's unfair competition law, and violations of California's Consumer Legal Remedies Act. The plaintiff moved to certify a putative class consisting of, quote, all consumers who purchased the product in California during a four-year time period. So first, the court ruled 23A commonality was clearly satisfied, where the plaintiff's claims contemplated two class-wide questions. Question number one, whether J&J's oil-free language was deceptive, and question number two, whether that deception was important enough to a reasonable customer when making their decision whether or not to purchase the product. The court ultimately found class certification turned on whether the plaintiff's damages methodology was adequate, not how it might be executed and what conclusions it may yield. The court ultimately granted certification of the plaintiff's class of oil-free moisturizer purchasers. You know, the typical defense lawyer's uh, bag of defenses includes concepts involving standing, injury in fact, and jurisdiction. Were there other certification rulings that pivoted on those sorts of defense points in 2022? Um, absolutely. One in particular that stands out in my mind. So the First Circuit in Enri Evenflow Company um, discussed that Article Three standing issue. Um, in that case, the district court dismissed the plaintiff's class complaint, um, alleging that the defendant misrepresented the safety of children's booster seats, um, and alleging that the putative class had relied on the safety representation um, when purchasing the booster seats. The district court in that case found that the putative class lacked standing because the complaint failed to um, allege that the booster seats didn't perform in any way um, and didn't allege that the seats were worth less than what Evenflow charged for them, despite this allegation that, that they would have paid less for the seats or would have preferred or bought a safer alternative. Um, on appeal, the First Circuit combined the alleged harms, higher purchase price and lower safety, into something just entitled overpayment. Um, and in its, standing, in, in its standing analysis, the First Circuit held that an overpayment injury of, the kind, of, of this kind or this nature was sufficient to allege Article III standing. 
So the First Circuit held that an allegation that a defendant's misrepresentation caused plaintiffs to suffer monetary losses by forcing them to overpay for a product actually did constitute an injury in fact under Article III. That's a fascinating ruling. I think it falls in the category of a must read for all corporate counsel that are facing consumer fraud litigation. Any other rulings of significance that you would point to in 2022 that ought to go in that must read box? Yes. So the overpayment theory of standing and even flow had significant support from the 2nd, 3rd, 5th, 6th, 7th, 8th, 9th, and 11th circuits, which had all previously held the monetary harm, such as class members alleged overpayment for the seats, was a real concrete injury under Article III. The First Circuit's decision in even flow had the effect of reviving the multi-district class claims against the defendant and beyond the putative class. It made clear that Article III standing analysis would not close courthouse doors to plaintiffs asserting monetary injury. Be interesting to see in 2023 how that plays out and how the plaintiff's bar uses it. On the settlement side, which is indicative of plaintiff success in this particular area and certifying cases and then transforming them into cash payments, what were some of the key settlements in the consumer fraud class action space? Well, in 2022, the top 10 consumer fraud settlements, meaning the largest settlements, totaled $8.596 billion. Of that group, the top settlement, Sweet v. Cardona, exceeded all of the others at $6 billion. And that case resolved claims brought by a putative class of borrowers who argued that they had been defrauded by one of about 150 mostly for-profit colleges. I know success begets copycats and plaintiff's attorneys tend to rush into the space when they see numbers like that. What would you both say corporate counsel ought to be on the lookout for in the coming year? Well, I would say that the plaintiff's class action bar continues to push the legal envelope in these types of cases with new variations of the consumer fraud putative class, implicating a variety of issues that courts will have to grapple with. Whether the putative class is hailed from new industries, whether the style of claims is unique in a procedural way, whether they're attempting to score Article III, these issues really implicate this evolving standard for standing. And consumer fraud class actions continue to inject new class-wide issues and theories into the federal court. Although it wasn't clear which side of the consumer fraud class action bar reigned supreme in 2022, there's always next year. And we expect to see more significant rulings in 2023 in this area. Well, thanks so much to both of you for this great tour of the consumer fraud class action world, both in 2022 and your predictions for 2023. And thank you, loyal blog readers, for being with us on today's Friday podcast. If you have any questions or comments regarding the podcast, please send us a direct message at DwayneMorrisClassActionReview.com. Thank you so much. Thank you.